So hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I'm glad that you joined me for this last episode of the Last Days series in Matthew 24. It has been quite the series and I hope that you've been tracking along with all of the episodes. And if you've not, please go back and listen to them because it's really important that you go back and understand the context before we jump into this last episode. Okay, and I know there's going to be some people who are tempted to just jump into this one because of the title, right, that we're dealing with the rapture. But really, you have to understand the context. So go back and listen to those earlier episodes. There's five earlier episodes. And there's also one that explains just a general overview of eschatology and the study of the end times. So definitely go back and check that one out if that if eschatology is something that's new to you. Right? We've covered a lot in this series though, right? And I pray that it's been informative and helpful for you and at least sparked some good discussion, discussions perhaps amongst your friends. Uh, We looked at what Jesus meant by this generation in our first episode, right? And showed that there was no other valid way to interpret it than to referring to the generation in Jesus's day, right? We also saw that the end of the age that he was speaking about was the Jewish old covenant age. And we demonstrated that all the signs of the end of the age, the persecutions, the war, the famines, the earthquake, etc., all that had all happened leading up to 70 AD at the destruction of Jerusalem. And even the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation can actually be historically confirmed as happening within this time period. And lastly, we saw that the cosmic deconstruction language that Jesus used of stars and moons and sun being blacked out, right, is actually from the Old Testament prophetic judgment language, right? That's the style of judgment language of the Old Testament prophets. And that there was indeed some very ominous and peculiar signs that happened in the sky during that time period, right? And all of these things confirm that Jesus was a true prophet. And that what he said would happen to this generation, meaning his generation, indeed did happen during that generation. However, all of this goes in contradiction to the popular view of end times that reigns in a lot of contemporary evangelicalism. Many are simply unaware that these are historical positions that have been held for far longer than their more modern novel uh, traditional interpretation that they know in terms of like left behind sort of theology and dispensationalism, right? And in this episode, we're going to tackle the hot topic of the rapture, right? This dispensational teaching has captured the imaginations of multitudes of believers today who await the snatching away from of believers just before the great tribulation, right? That would be the pre-tribulation um, view of the rapture. And this teaching is popularized by many famous evangelical pastors and authors, including leaders such as uh, Dr. J- David Jeremiah, right? Tim LaHaye, John Hagee, John MacArthur, Dave Hunt, David Wilkerson, John Waverd, Charles Ryrie, and many, many others could be named. As you know, recent events of the war between Russia and Ukraine broke out, right? There were many speculating about whether or not this is the end. But is this view actually correct? Well, let's jump on in today. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. 
Now, I, like many other of my evangelical good friends, we remember reading and watching even some of the left behind model uh, novels and movies that depicted, you know, planes falling out of the sky and cars crashing as Christians were raptured out of the world, leaving behind only their shoes and clothing for some reason. Right. And they're, and you know what was it, it was funny about that too is that for some reason their their undies were were raptured but you know the rest of their clothing was left anyways <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what was going on there <laughs> but anyways in, in youth group we'd we'd make up skits actually about the rapture happening and unbelievers being left behind and bewildered and devastated that they missed it right and this makes for a really gripping and a great imaginative fiction for sure right. But Matthew 24 verses 36 to 44 is actually one of the most popular rapture proof texts. Uh, And I've often heard Christians today expressing their anticipation to be raptured out of this world as things get worse or speculating even about whether or not this generation would be the last one on earth. However, I believe that they are actually severely misguided as many were in the past and even as I was in the past too. Okay. And, you know, there's many failed predictions that we can point to on this, right? History has a long list of failed predictions of the end times. And perhaps one of the earliest, though not a rapture prediction in the modern sense anyways, was actually in the second century, a heretical group called the Montanists, which began in Figria, right? In modern day Turkey. Their leader, Montanus, he claimed to have revelations from God that Christ's second coming to end history would be imminent, right? Obviously, though, he was wrong, right? Because we're, you know, 18 centuries down the line. And Novation and Donatus in the third and fourth centuries were also false end time prophets who uh, were later branded as heretics, actually. And when Rome was sacked by the Vandals in the fifth century, people thought it was the beginning of the end then as well. And this continued on to the turn of the first millennium as the last days of the year 999 AD approached. Right? And many flooded, actually, this is recorded in history, many people flooded St. Peter's in Rome, weeping and hysterical as they awaited the end of the world. And it didn't happen. And similar mistake, um, you know, prophetic hysteria about the end of the, the world happening again was repeated at 1100 and 1200 and 1245 AD, right? And the start of the Inquisition in 1209 to 1244 and the Black Death, the bubonic plague, right? Which wiped out a third of almost, you know, to, to almost half of Europe's population in the 14th century, right? That was also thought to be a sign of the end, but it wasn't. Yet people still continued to speculate. Actually, actually, um, Melchior Hoffman in 1531 announced that the second coming would take place in 1533. And Nicholas Cusa predicted that the world would end before 1734. The earthquake of 1755 in Lisbon and the French Revolution both were also claimed to be signs of the times. Yet we're still here plodding along and every new prophecy expert assures us that sure, you know, these all these guys were all wrong, but it'll be different this time with us, right? I've got it right. <laughs> well, let's continue on. In the in the eighteen hundreds, right, William Miller was an end times preacher who predicted the second coming in eighteen forty three. Didn't work out for him. He gained uh, as many as a hundred thousand followers who believed that they would be raptured to to heaven when that day arrived. And when his prediction failed, Miller recalculated it to 1844, which also failed. And then the Seventh-day Adventist church formed out of the Millerite movement and also had some very unorthodox views of the end times. Um, Mikhail Dahl predicted in his book, The Midnight Cry, that the present era would end by 1980. 
Reginald Ed- Edward Duncan predicted that the millennium would begin in 1979 with the Russian vision of, of America and Emil Gavrilok of Southwest Radio Church predicted that the rapture would occur by 1981. All of these were also wrong, though. Uh, there were more recent examples as well. Uh, Gary North actually wrote of Edgar C. Weisenhardt, um, who said, quote, whose best-selling two-part book announced the, in the summer of 1988 that Jesus would surely appear to rapture his church during the Rosh Hashanah week in mid-September. Half of the book was called uh, On Board Time. The other was more aptly titled 1888 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. I can think of one key argument why his book's thesis was incorrect. No rapture so far, and it is now February 1989. So much for all 88 arguments. That was in um, Gary North in Gentry's Beast of Revelation, right? Um, Even more recently and infamously, Hal Camping made major news headlines with his rapture predictions in 2011. Maybe you remember it. ABC News actually reported on it. They said, quote, when the appointed hour for the rapture to begin in New York, the skies did darken a little, but all that followed was a drizzling rain that soon passed. Nothing like what Harold Camping and his followers said they believed would occur. I'm utterly, absolutely, absolutely convinced it's going to happen, said Harold Camping, the 89-year-old evangelist and president of Family Radio, whose biblical calculations have ignited rapture fever across America. Camping's predicted um, time of May 21st at 5.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time came and went without much fuss. He had spent a lot of money on over 5,000 billboards, posters, flyers, and bus displays across America. However, camping, he didn't learn his lesson. He again predicted the rapture, uh, this time instead for October of 2011, which likewise was a failure. In all, camping predicted the rapture and the end of the world at least 12 times during his lifetime. He became a laughingstock to the secular media and unfortunately dragged evangelical Christianity along with him through the mud. Other popular dispensational figures like John Hagee have attempted to make end-time predictions. And Hagee is very, very popular. I don't know why people still listen to him. Hagee, in 2005, wrote in his book, Jerusalem Countdown, a warning to the world, which sold over a million copies, that the Antichrist will be the head of the European Union. In 2015, he stirred a craze with his blood moon predictions, maybe you remember those, concerning our major financial crisis and that something dramatic would happen in the Middle East and that would impact the world. I don't know why all of these predictions are so vague. Now, his, his preaching has featured the rapture prominently and all of his predictions, all have failed yet, right? And yet somehow he still retains a significant audience. Why? I don't know. The famous best-selling modern end times author, Hal Lindsey, had predicted that the rapture and end would happen in 1988 because it was 40 years after Israel became a nation in 1948. And his book, the late great planet Earth, which sold more than 25 million copies and it still continues to sell, it was one of the major books that popularized this belief about the imminent rapture. Lindsay wrote in his book, The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, that, quote, the decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. And in an interview with Christianity Today in 1977, he said, I didn't ask to be a hero, but I guess I have become one in the Christian community, so I accept it. But if I'm wrong about this, I guess I'll, be, I'll become a bum. Well, how'd that work out? Apparently, Lindsay wasn't done polishing his crystal ball, though. He later revised his theory to say, 
I feel certain that it will take place before the year 2000. Well, we're still waiting here. Francis X. Gomelock, in his book, The Day and the Hour, Christianity's perennial fascination with predicting the end of the world, catalogs all more than a thousand false predictions over the past 2,000 years. People have tried predicting everything from the identity of the Antichrist to the date of Christ's coming. Even now, <clears throat> on my Facebook feed, there are several people looking at current world events and saying that the end is near. Two things which are common to all of these would-be end-time predictors are that they were all sure that their predictions um, were going to come true, and also, secondly, that they were all proven wrong eventually. There's a biblical term for these phony end-time predictors who are always proven wrong. You know what it is? False prophets. Now, such would-be end-time doomsday prophets have always brought shame upon Christianity. Yet their prominence on Christian television stations, books, and media make their erroneous teachings spread exponentially. Their, their believers and followers somehow pass over their failed predictions and buy into the excitement of their next latest, greatest newspaper exegesis. Dr. Greg Banson rightly comments this way. He says, quote, The newspaper has no prerogative to challenge God's word of truth, nor do those who read the newspapers. Now, many of these people are genuine, God-loving, Bible-believing Christians who have been deceived, unfortunately, by this erroneous teaching. Yet skeptics look at these failed predictions and interpretations, and they can say, well, if they were wrong uh, on something as big as this, which they were so sure about, then why should we trust them about what they're so sure about with respect to salvation and the gospel? You see, these things, while it may not affect your salvation, it affects the church's witness. Okay? So this is why this is an important topic to study, right? Because these errors in eschatology have consequences. And it's truly something that I think every Christian must seriously consider for the sake of their witness to a watching world. So I'm going to take you through a little bit of a history about the rapture's beginnings, okay? Now, while this history is a bit murky, Barbara Rossing quotes one critic that the rapture had as its origins with a 15-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald, right, in 1830 in Port Glasgow, Scotland, at a healing service, right? Who, and she had a, a vision of a two-stage return of Christ. And this was adopted and amplified by John Nelson Darby, very important name here, who, who founded the Plymouth Brethren, right? And that was in Rossing's book, The Rapture, Exposed. Now, Darby together with Schofield and, other, and others, right, helped to popularize the belief within evangelical circles of the 19th century, which was, again, um, started by this 15-year-old uh, girl. <laughs> now, prior to Darby, no Christian in over 1,800 years of church history believed in a rapture. Let that sink in on you, okay? Prior to Darby, no Christian in over 1,800 hundred years of church history believed in a rapture. Even dispensationalists actually have to admit that fact. Um, quote, it is, it is scarcely to be found in a single book or sermon through the period of 1600 years. If any doubt this statement, let them search. And that was from H.A. Ironside, The Mysteries of God, page 50. Thus, this belief in the rapture is a fairly novel or new invention and not originally based in sound and thorough exegesis, but rather and fanciful speculation. Now, prior to this period, American evangelicals were overwhelmingly post-millennial, actually. 
The, the inheritance of their Puritan fathers right, would, would show this. However, after two world wars, the Great Depression and the Cold War and growing tensions in the Middle East, it actually provided a fertile ground for this more pessimistic eschatology and this eschatological system to take root. Right? The new hope for people was that as things go from bad to worse in our world, it was a signal that the church would be raptured and rescued from experiencing the worst of it. When Israel became a state in 1948, this only served to strengthen the dispensationalist belief in their reading of biblical prophecy. And since then, newspaper exegesis has been the order of the day, with many dispensational Christians trying to decipher what news headlines fit into their timeline of eschatological events leading up to this sudden rapture of believers. However, if we want to be faithful to the text, we must examine what it meant in context and to the original audience. So what should determine our beliefs is what does the scriptures say? Right? As we finish off this series in Matthew 24, and we're going to look at the text now, we'll be looking primarily at the verses in this chapter that are used as a rapture proof text. And then we're going to briefly consider some others. Okay. So as we jump in, I know that was a long intro, but I felt like I needed to, to cover that because the rapture is such a big um, it, topic to discuss. So hopefully that brief history helps you to understand some of the context behind maybe some of the lenses that you wear as you read this text, like some of the traditions that you have that you bring to the text. So we're going to examine it afresh and hopefully I'll give you a new perspective to consider. So let's read the text now. I'm reading from Matthew 24 verses 36 to 44. It says this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So let's start off first with that phrase, as in the days of Noah, from verses 36 to 41. Now, Jesus says that concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now, futurists believe that the day that he's referring to is his final coming in glory. And remember, I've been arguing for a preterist view of this text, meaning that it's already been uh, accomplished, right? Futurists believe that this section, when Jesus says that day and hour, that it's referring to Christ's final coming and glory at the end of history. However, as we've seen in previous episodes, right? And if you've missed them, please go back and listen to them. Jesus' predictions up to this point in the chapter have all been concerning his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. Right? And again, if you miss those, go back and listen to them because this episode is not going to make sense unless you've been tracking with it. Okay? And the topic now of this discourse has not changed in Matthew 24. Jesus has not changed topics right? and he's still on the same subject. So therefore, there's, there's no reason to believe that Jesus suddenly switches and jumps topics. Right? 
the, so I think that the, the that day is the day of judgment upon apostate Israel in the first century. Now there are some um, preterists and some post millennials who will look at this and say, well, the that day is a far um, indicator, right? So they wouldn't agree that this is also in reference to uh, to the judgment on Jerusalem. Right? Just as the this generation is a near demonstrative, they would say that that, that day is a far demonstrative, right? Um, I disagree with that because I don't see a division in the text naturally. If we just read the flow of the text, it seems that Jesus is still talking about the same thing. He hasn't given any indication that he switched topics. Uh, so, and there's, there's nothing to, to make him switch topics. Not like the disciples now jumped and asked a different question, right? The, his disciples had actually asked, when shall these things be? In verse three, Jesus replied to them, telling them that this generation, meaning his contemporaries in those days, will not pass away before they happen. And he described what signs will signal the nearness of these events in verses four to 35. And as we saw in the previous episodes, this generation means the generation which was alive at the time of Christ. There was no more straightforward way of interpreting the term and those who try to make it mean some generation in the future have to twist the text. However, Jesus did not give them a specific date or time. So even though he says that this generation is going to ha- you know, happen within, he didn't give them a specific date or time. He simply states that it would happen within this generation and that no one knows the exact day and hour. So therefore, for the Christians in the first century, this would have kept them on their toes and on the lookout for all the signs that Jesus gave to warn them of Jerusalem's impending destruction. And Jesus then uses the analogy of Noah to illustrate how this judgment day would come. In Noah's day, life went on as usual, right? Eating, drinking, and marrying, right? You see that in verse 38. Life also went along as usual in Jerusalem prior to its destruction. In Noah's day, the flood was God's judgment upon wicked humanity who had scorned Noah's preaching. Now Jerusalem's judgment would come also like a flood upon the unbelieving Jews who had persecuted Christians and scorned their message. So let's take a look now at the text and ask the question, well, who was left behind, right? Here's a point that I think many dispensationalist believers misinterpret, right? In the story of Noah, who were the people who were swept away in judgment? Verse 39. Was it the the wicked or the righteous? Well, obviously the wicked, right? So then, who were the ones who were left behind? The wicked or the righteous? Well, in Noah's story, the righteous are left behind. Not the wicked. The wicked are swept away, right? This is Jesus' analogy and is actually the key to interpreting what he says next. See, Jesus gives two examples, right? When the judgment comes, he says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. That's verses 40 and 41. Now, the popular dispensational interpretation of these verses has been, take, has been that it refers to the rapture and that the ones taken are the, are the Christians taken up to be with the Lord. However, if you think about this, right? If the analogy that Jesus is using is from the story of Noah, right? Then that means that the ones who are left behind are actually the righteous and the ones who are taken are taken in judgment, right? As it, he, remember he says, as it is, as it was, sorry, in the days of Noah, right? That the wicked were taken or swept away with the flood while the righteous remained. So therefore the dispensational interpretation actually gets this whole passage flipped backwards, 
Commentator Matthew Henry, and he's writing uh, somewhere between 1662 to 1740. Right, he notes this: as the flood took away the sinners of the old world irresistibly and irrecoverably, so shall secure sinners that mocked at Christ and His coming be taken away by the wrath of the Lamb, when the great day of His wrath comes, which will be like the coming of the deluge, a, a destruction which there will be no fleeing from. And that's from Matthew's, uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible. So this is not a new interpretation of this passage. And furthermore, dispensational interpreters pride themselves in being literalists, right? That they take the Bible literally to, to build their eschatological system. However, I think they're inconsistent and they're actually very conveniently literalists. You see, we can see how um, somebody today might be caught out in a field, right? But who today grinds at the mill? Is this not a more appropriate um, context for the first century in Jerusalem that Jesus was actually speaking to? Uh, doc, Dr. Guy Demar, he comments this way. He says, many futurists claim that the phrase took them all away in Matthew 24, 39 refers to a rapture that is still in our future. But on the contrary, in the context of uh, chapter 24, verses 37 to 39, taken presumably means taken to judgment. And you can see cross-reference at Jeremiah 6, 11 for that. Um, and he's quoting from Craig Keener in the IVP Bible background commentary. And the phrase ties the judgment of the world in Noah's day with the judgment of the Jews uh, world in Israel's day that took place with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, this passage is not talking about a rapture that is yet to come, but rather it refers to the suddenness of the judgment that would befall the wicked in Jerusalem in that first century generation who rejected Christ. Remember, Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the unbelieving Jews that he's actually talking to at that time. And we've covered that in previous episodes. So I'm not going to go over it, right? That the, the, the severity of that judgment that befell the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem at 70 AD as recorded in history. In previous episodes, we actually went through the historical sources. So definitely listen to them. Now let's deal with the next bit where he's telling them to be watchful, right? Verses 42 to 44. Jesus' solemn warning to his disciples was to motivate them to watchfulness and zealous witness and, and faithfulness, right? Why? Because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 42, his coming in judgment on Jerusalem was impending and Christ had given them all the signs that they needed to look out for um, in order to escape with their lives from that judgment. They were to be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Indeed, as we've seen in this series, right, this is the testimony of what history records, that it was the Christians who escaped Jerusalem's fate at the hands of the Roman armies, only because of their Lord's warnings. Meanwhile, the unbelieving Jews who rejected him as their Messiah were taken away in judgment. The fulfillment of Jesus' predictions in the events leading up to the temple's destruction in 70 AD are well documented and give compelling arg argument and evidence that Matthew 24 verses 3 to 44 has already occurred, proving Jesus to be a pr true prophet, God's Messiah, and the risen King of Kings. Now, let's ask the question, is there any biblical support? Right? One of the remarkable things about this doctrine of the rapture is that there is not a single verse in all scripture to support it. Even popular dispensational authors like Tim LaHaye, they have to admit this. Tim LaHaye, he, he writes this in No Fear of the Storm, page 69. He says, quote, 
one objection to the pre-tribulation rapture is that no one passage of scripture teaches the two aspects of his second coming separately by tribulation. This is true, but then no one passage teaches a post-trib or mid-trib rapture either. Now, this should be a very shocking admission. Marvin Rosenthal critiques uh, John Walford's um, so John Wolvert, he's the former uh, professor and president of Dallas Theological Seminary, quite popular seminary in the US, right? Uh, but anyways, he's critiquing the book Rapture Question. And he writes this, quote, not once among 50 arguments does this godly Christian leader cite one biblical text that explicitly teaches pre-tribulation rapturism, not once. This was not an oversight. The reason for the admission of any pre-tribulation rapture text is clear. There are none. There simply is no explicit exegetical evidence for pre-tribulation rapturism. Right? And that was in Rosenthal's uh, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church, page 280. Even though there's not one explicit verse to support this position, millions of Bible-believing evangelicals hold to the system with unbending tenacity. And believe me, I've interacted with them. And it's tough. Now, I know at this point, some of the you guys who maybe believe in a, in a rapture of some sort are thinking of some proof texts. So let me deal with some of these other rapture proof texts, okay? One of the things which happens um, to try to prove the belief of the rapture is confusing texts which refer to the general resurrection of the dead and apply you know, these texts instead to what's called the rapture. Right? So some dispensational advocates, advocates like uh, Dave Hunt, for example, say that Christ's promise to take believers to heaven is in reference to the rapture, actually. Right? And they confuse the Christian blessed hope of the resurrection with the doctrine of the rapture. However, the rapture is not the blessed hope. Instead, Paul says in Philippians 1.21 that our blessed hope is the hope that when Christians die, they will go to heaven to be with the Lord. This, his whole argument of the blessed hope in, for example, 1 Corinthians 15 is not about a rapture, but rather about the resurrection. Paul's goal was not to attain to the rapture, but to attain to the resurrection from the dead. See Philippians 3.11. Right? The blessed hope which believers were waiting for in Titus 2.13 was the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now note that it was not the physical appearance of Jesus, which was in view in this verse, but rather the appearing of his glory. It was Christ's glory, which appeared and was put on display in the events of the first century. This, this happened in the, as the old covenant age, which, was, which had a lesser glory, faded away, and the new covenant age with even more glory was established. And this is exactly what Paul taught actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. He says there, quote, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is, what is permanent have glory. Right? And in this text, Paul is clearly speaking of the passing away of the old order the old covenant, right? The old covenant age with the temple and the, the sacrificial system, which was being replaced by the new covenant age in Christ, which had a much greater glory. Now let's take a look at some other verses that pointed to, and just ask the question, is this really talking about the rapture? 
One of the problems with those who hold to a dispensational interpretation is that they must first presuppose the validity of their theory, which doesn't have a single proof text to support it, in order to then interpret the scriptures according to their preconceived notion. Right? And we must consider when looking at proof texts whether it is self-evident that these texts clearly teach a pre-trib rapture where the church is taking off the earth before a great tribulation. And we'll briefly look at a few of these rapture proof texts, so to speak, right? So let's look firstly at Revelation 4.1, which says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, even John Walvoord, a committed believer in the rapture, has to admit that about this verse, he says, quote, it is clear from the context that this is not an explicit reference to the rapture of the church, as John was not actually translated or raptured. In fact, he was still in his natural body on the island of Patmos. This verse has to do with what John experienced during his prophetic visions in the book of Revelation, not a rapture of the church. However, some will make the argument that because the word church is not used after chapter 4, in the book of Revelation until the last chapters, that this means that the church has been raptured. Yet, I don't know if you caught this, but that's an argument from silence, <laughs> right? Word counting is not a valid method of exegesis. Okay, so think about it. And this is from Gundry, the uh, Church and Tribulation. He says this, quote, The church is not mentioned as such in Mark, Luke, John, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, or Jude and not until chapter 16 of Romans. Unless we are prepared to relegate large chunks of the New Testament to a limbo of irrelevance to the church, we cannot make the mention or omission of the term church a criterion for determining the applicability of a passage to saints of the present age. Right? So simply because the book of Revelation does not mention the church specifically in a certain portion does not automatically mean that the church has been raptured especially when there's no verse in Revelation that clearly teaches that. Also, the book was written to the churches. So why would John have to continuously address them when he's already assuming that they'd be reading it, right? Remember the letters to the churches in the first few chapters. We can't divorce Revelation from its first century context if we want to be good Bible interpreters. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your support. If you've benefited from the ministry of Theotivity, please prayerfully consider partnering with me by giving a donation of any amount. Big or small, it all helps. I want to keep Theotivity going and to find ways to make it financially self-sufficient. I'd also like to be able to invest in advertising and upgrades to improve the quality of the content, all of which require money. To date, I've paid for everything out of pocket. However, with a young family, we recently adopted a little baby boy, and other commitments, this is not something I can reasonably continue to do without your help. When I started Theotivity, I had no clue if or how God would use it. It was an experiment in stepping out in faith to build something for the sake of the kingdom. I'm happy to announce that God has used it in surprising ways, with the site receiving at least two to 3,000 visits consistently per month, and the podcast steadily growing in listenership. I'm genuinely humbled and give glory to God. If you're like me, I know you long to see more solid Christian content getting out there, but that takes time, effort, and money. So if this is something that you'd like to see continue, and if you found value in the content here at Theotivity, skip a few fancy latte drinks from your favorite woke coffee shop 
And please consider donating at theotivity.com slash donate. You can find links to donate in the description of this post or episode. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. Let's look at another passage that's often proof texted as a rapture passage. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 to 17. It says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. Now this is perhaps another of the most popular rapture proof texts. However, this text refers to the general resurrection of the saints at the second coming, right? The final end time second coming. Uh, And it simply says that the dead in Christ will be raised first, right? That is before those who are alive are caught up to meet Christ in the air as he descends to earth. There's no mention of the church being raptured before a great, a period of great tribulation in this text. That's nowhere in this text. Neither does this text say that the Lord will reverse directions to go back to heaven with the saints for seven years, right? All those things have to be assumed and read into the text. The text doesn't say that. In the, if, you know, if we read the plain meaning of the text, it simply says that Christians alive at the time of Christ's final coming are going to be caught up to meet him in the clouds as he descends in glory. And this reflects actually a common practice in the ancient world where the people of a city would go out to meet the victorious general and the army as they rode into town in glory. And note also how the text ends. It says, and so we will be always with the Lord. It does not say, and so we shall be in the clouds or in heaven with the Lord for seven years uh, during the great tribulation until he comes back again for a thousand year earthly reign. Right? That's not in the text. It simply ushers in the eternal state and the belie- uh, of believers with their Lord. So rapture theology has to be read into that text. How about another text? Um, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 22 to 26. That's often proof texted. So let's, let's look at it. It says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Now this passage is important to our discussion. Here Paul makes the the clear case that after the resurrection at the final coming of Christ, then comes the end. That's it. No rapture and a seven year period in between. Now one could expect that if the rapture was important to Christian eschatology, that Paul would have mentioned it in this chapter, where he writes one of the most extended teachings on the, resurrec- on the resurrection. Yet there is no discussion here of the rapture, nor a great, great tribulation, nor an earthly millennial reign of Christ before the eternal state. Right? The only way to fit these things into these verses is to stuff some sort of gap theory, right? which has no argumentation from the text itself. And this is exactly what most dispensational teachers do without any exegetical argument for it. Yet Jesus himself confirms that both believers and unbelievers are are resurrected at the same time. And you can look at John 5 verses 28 to 29 for that. And it's not separated by a thousand years. Okay. Now note also that this happens after Jesus has destroyed every rule, authority, and power and has put all his enemies under his feet. Right. This speaks 
of the unstoppable advance of his kingdom in the world over time. And if you think carefully about the chronology that's in this verse that is teaching us, right, it says that the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. This means that every other enemy must be destroyed first. Right? If death is the last enemy, then that means that all the others have to be destroyed before it. Right? Yet in some people's eschatology, it's actually the first enemy to be destroyed is death. And then those other enemies will have to be taken care of. However, this is not what the Bible teaches us. Christ's kingdom will advance through the church and hell's gates aren't going to ultimately stand against it. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, because he's given us his power and presence to complete the mission of discipling all the nations and bringing them into obedience to him in Matthew 18 verses, uh, sorry, Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. Thus in the long run, we can expect that every enemy of Christ will gradually be defeated as he reigns now until he comes back at the end to deliver the kingdom to God and put away death and to usher the eternal state in. Now, this is a very optimistic outlook for the long-term success of the church and the spread of Christ's kingdom. And that's what I believe, because I believe now, after I've examined the scriptures and read more into these things, that that's actually clearly what the texts teach. And even though at one time I was very committed to a pessimistic outlook on eschatology, I had to let what the, the scriptures clearly teach re, re, reform my beliefs. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about working towards a hopeful future just to end off this series, right? Now, I hope that this series of expositions in Matthew 24 and these episodes has at least shown that there, you know, that this passage cannot be used to support those sorts of beliefs, right? And although dispensational eschatology can lead many Christians to be pessimistic about hopes for cultural transformation in these hard times, the truth is that the great tribulation of Matthew 24, which has been misinterpreted to give this dour outlook for the future actually refers to events now in the past to us. They were future to Jesus's audience, but they're in the past to us. Right? And the fact that is already been fulfilled should bolster our confidence that Jesus is who he said he is. And he actually accomplished what he said he would. And the call to be watchful and urgent about the work of the kingdom extends also to us today. Although the great tribulation of Matthew 24 is passed to us, there still remains work to do, right? Jesus has commissioned us to make disciples of all nations. And that's a huge task. Nations, nations, right? <laughs> this is what a lot of people get wrong about the great commission. It's not just about making individual disciples. It's about discipling nations. That's a huge task. Nations are more than just individuals. Nations involve cultures, languages, laws, civil government, education, arts, economics, and every other area of public society. And we have to disciple them and bring them into obedience to all of his commands. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. And this necessarily involves the work of cultural transformation through the power of the gospel of the kingdom and the application of God's law word to every area of life. And we should not have an escapist mentality that abandons this world to the enemy or sees efforts at cultural transformation as just polishing brass on a sinking ship, right? Bad eschatology has consequences, and we've been reaping those consequences for the last couple of decades. That's why the culture is in, this, in decline. That's one of the major reasons anyways, right? And even for the one who's not, let's say, fully thought out their eschatological position, it necessarily will affect how we live our lives in light of our 
of, of our future orientation, right? I know of Christians who hold off having kids, for example, because they think that the great tribulation is coming and the world is going to, to end in their generation. How does that benefit the future if Christians decide not to have and raise kids to be the next faithful generation? You see, if we have a pessimistic outlook that things are fated to get worse and that um, you know, work to transform culture is ultimately futile, it's going to affect our expectations and become a self-fulfilling prophecy because basically the salt is going to lose its saltiness. Some Christians who believe in dispensational eschatology are so committed to losing, believing that ultimately Christ's church will lose in the culture and become weak, failing, apostate, and ineffective. But this is a far stretch from the glorious image of the church and her mission that we get from scripture, right? For others who believe that the end is near, they, they may not plan for future generations to leave an inheritance or to work for lasting change because, you know, it's all going to burn up anyways. However, if we see Jesus' words in Matthew 24 as already fulfilled, it gives us confidence that his word is sure, and thus we can trust the promise of his, his power and presence with us as we seek to disciple the nations. Now, what sense does it make for Jesus to back his church up with all authority in heaven and on earth, and with the promise of his presence every step of the way? But do you only expect failure? This doesn't make any sense. The dispensational belief about a rapture should be left behind. <laughs> pardon the pun. Actually, no, don't pardon the pun. It should be left behind. And instead, we should embrace what Jesus predicted in Matthew 24 and was fulfilled in 70 AD. As the former Left Behind star, Kirk Cameron, who, by the way, is now post-millennial, uh, he once said, quote, their attitude, that is the Puritans, was not uh, oh, the beast and the Antichrist is here. Let's just keep our heads down and wait for the end of the world. Instead, they said, let's make a 500-year plan and go start a nation. Right? That one-time poster boy of dispensational rapture theology has now come to realize that this false teaching needs to be rejected. And he actually said this, quote, I don't see anything in the scriptures saying that defeat was inevitable. Right? So Christ is coming back in glory to put to death death and usher in the consummation and eternal state. And as we work towards the Christianization of all nations of the world, we should expect to see the gospel advance and transform individuals, families, communities, and thereby change cultures. And this change comes gradually. Right? I'm not a triumphalist right, that thinks that this can happen overnight. This change comes gradually and incrementally over a long period of time. I might not even live to see the fruits of this. And thus, we should plan, though, to build, right, for strategic incremental changes and ways that we can transform cultures and nations over generations. And our desire should be to see Christ receive the fullness of the reward for which he died. To him, to him alone, belongs the obedience of the nations. See that in Genesis 49, verse 10. So I hope that you've enjoyed and were blessed by this series of episodes. Right. And if, if it's maybe made you think a little bit, please give me some feedback, send an email, leave a comment, right. And share it with your friends and discuss it. These are important things. Again, these are not issues of salvation. I don't believe that anybody who disagrees with me on my particular view of eschatology is out of the kingdom, but they are important in the sense that they do affect how we live and understand our faith today. So I hope that you will wrestle with them sincerely. Right. Anyways, until next time. Soli Deo Gloria. 
Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.